It's a different world since Hodder Education last hosted 1,500 students and teachers at the Hazard Student Conference in 2019. But great news! They are extremely excited to announce that they are getting the band back together again in November 2022. Inspire your A-level geography students by bringing them along to hear from the expert panel, including Dr. Martin Degg, Professor Fiona Tweed and Professor David Pedley in Nottingham, Manchester and London on the 18th, 23rd and 25th of November. Visit www.hoddereducation.co.uk forward slash hazards hyphen 2022 to explore the full lineup and program as well as the chance to provisionally book your students' places. Welcome to JogPod. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Clary Simpson. Clary, a geography teacher, now in your fourth year of teaching, but you've also become an NQT and EC induction mentor. You've got that as a role. And in addition, you've written um, a chapter in a book called Year One, Lighting the Path on Your First Year in Teaching by Michael Childs and David Goodwin. Welcome to JogPod. Hi, John. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Um, yeah, it sounds when you write it like that, it sounds like I've got loads of jobs to do. Um, so thanks for reminding me about that. Um, yeah, I'm in my fourth year. I'm at a school in, in Rotherham. I trained to teach in Sheffield, which is the home of GA. Um, and yeah, just recently got this new role as, as NQTCT mentor. So yeah, really excited to talk to you today. Ooh, which school are you teaching in? I'm at Brinsworth. Oh, wow. Well, Brinsworth. I'm at Aston, so it's just down the road. Oh, yes, yes, Aston. One of my trainees from last year has just got a job there. He's enjoying it already. It's an interesting area. It was very heavily mining when I was there, but of course they've all closed. So you'll have a different type of cohort mm. compared to the one that I had then. You started your degree as a as a geographer, all going well, and uh, you decided to become a teacher. What what was it that made you think, "Ooh, I fancy being a teacher"? Well, in fact, what what made you decide to be a geographer? Well, um, I've been a geographer since kind of school, and I always tell my GCSE students, "You know, you're a geographer now." Um, did GCSE at obviously did GCSE in Key Stage 3, uh, sorry, Key Stage 4, um, did it at A-level. I had incredible geography teachers, and I think now is the, the best time to shout out to them. Um, so Miss Kershaw, who was my Key Stage 4 geography teacher, she was also my head of year um, down in Lincolnshire, and then I moved to the joint sixth form in our, in our local area, and I was taught at the boys' grammar school, which was so intimidating. Um, walking into that space and just had the most incredible teachers, Miss Chaddock and Mr. Wilson, who actually taught me, took me on my first field trip to Sheffield. Um, I'd never been to Sheffield before. So they reignited, you know, or ignited the love of Sheffield. Um, did my A-levels and then you might be surprised to hear, I uh, chose sociology for my undergraduate degree. Um, so I did sociology at university in Sheffield, at the University of Sheffield. Um, and I kind of started to get this strain all the way through my um, undergraduate degree of demography, ageing, 
and the life cycle. So geography was always there, just kind of in the background. And I remember going to, because you do when you're a student, anything that offers kind of free food, free pizza. Um, there was a teach first night and they wanted to talk to us about teaching. And I hadn't really thought about it. Like I said, I'd had these incredible inspirational teachers, um, but I hadn't thought about it. Um, and then, yeah, the free pizza kind of lured me in. I didn't choose Teach First. I chose um, a kind of teaching school alliance called the, the SKIT option. So it was kind of school-based training. Um, did a kind of subject knowledge enhancement course, which we'll talk later probably about subject knowledge and how important I believe it is um, for new staff and all staff really. Um, and yeah, it just kind of kind of went from there. My mum works in a school as an, in an SEN role and all the way through my teacher training, she was just recruiting other teachers to tell me, don't do it. You'll go gray instantly. There's no point. It's, it's a lost cause. But I was like, no, I, I just really feel like this is, this is my calling and this is what I'm supposed to do. And yeah, now I can't, I can't think of anything else I'd want to do. Well, that's pretty amazing, given the four years that you've had, because I, I was just looking back over those four years and you've been teaching the four years through COVID. Your NQT year was a was a COVID year. What an absolute nightmare that must have been. It, it's, it's enough to put anybody off teaching, I'd have thought. That's it. Um, it was it was. It was an interesting one. I'm I'm so lucky to be kind of well educated. I've got a good job. Um, so when it was time to pack up shop and and move online and move home, I was able to do that. It was the comfort of my own apartment, home office. I was able to work from home. So I found I found it initially a really good time. Um, and I actually wrote a piece in Tez on it, just how much. Um, time it was to kind of reflect and refine and I, I read loads and learned loads and uh, you guys in the GA I was just podcasting the whole time you know um reading my subscription articles and just getting good um so actually COVID was a time of learning and reflection for me towards the end I was like no it's back, it's clustering time now I need to get back but uh, in that kind of initial hunker down let's let's just get on and do it I yeah use that time to get refine my practice I think um and to hone it yeah read a bit of hands Rosalind read a bit of prisons of geography you know got it all finessed that when I was coming back in September I had that kind of base basis of knowledge um but I think for the kids it it was really difficult and some of the hardest times professionally I've ever had ringing home and and knowing things aren't quite right and we can't do much about it but but that being said it was yeah a time for learning and and when we came back we were oh we were ready to go <laughs> you've obviously got lots of enthusiasm we've got enthusiasm and a love for the subject in spades um and and I do want to talk about how we retain teachers, because I, I was doing a little bit of reading and I found out that the dropout rate in the first two years of teaching has been hovering around 20%. And I also did a bit of investigating and looked at the ONS figures of, of, the, um, of the last census. 
and it was for employee turnover levels and rates by industry section. It was from January 2017 to December 2018. There, there were 21 categories on there, and education was the third worst for retention. And I also read that the DfE is expecting a, a post-COVID exodus. And yet you're cheerily going on about how wonderful it is. Why do you think so many teachers are leaving or were leaving? Well, I was reading a similar article in the Financial Times about this and kind of where are all the teachers going? Because they're not moving between schools. They're, they're leaving the profession, aren't they? And there's, you know, there's several reasons for that. There's the obvious of time and, and pay. Pay is at an awful level for the amount of work that we're expected to do and the, the kind of creeping work that we have to do pastorally with children. Um, and it is years of underfunding. And yeah, we've, we've, we're responsible for a lot more, I feel. Um, and not, that's not kind of reflected in our pay. It's not all about pay, but it but it is when you live in in times that we do with cost of living and and it's it's trying times, isn't it? When you're on inset day and and your head teacher saying, um, "Come to us if you're struggling to pay your bills." You blimey! Are they having those conversations in banks and other other parts of um, of the economy? Probably not. Um, so I think pay is a really major issue. I think the kind of training and, and kind of um, systems we put around teachers up until really recently weren't there either. Um, can teachers of kind of even five, six years ago say that they had a, a team of mentors and they had a system that they could go through if they were struggling with a specific class or even a specific academic concept, probably not. And then there's just the overall kind of COVID fallout of, of everything really. Parents are on their knees um, in terms of they've had their kids home for two years pretty much and they want more, they want more from schools and teachers. And um, we've been absolutely dragged in the media there's no other word for it um we've gone through countless education secretaries who kind of pull us in all the different directions that we could possibly be in so there's there's loads of reasons there's also loads of reasons to become a teacher you know it's a it's a profession there's the pension element there's the, this idea that there's no greater time really to be teaching our students about the world around us and to listen and learn and be tolerant and especially at my subject, our subject geography, gosh, there's, there's never been a more exciting time to study it. So, so yes, it's that dropout figure is, is terrible, but I've got, I'm optimistic that we've got systems in place now. Um, at the ECF framework being one of those where we're we're on the up. Fingers crossed. Yeah, I, was, I was talking to my wife actually because she um, she works for Investors in People and she came out with um, a comment that their research had come up with, which was that people leave their managers, not their jobs. 
Now, I know some people leave because they're in a toxic school, but the implication for me, and I think this is why the DfE picked up on what they've done, is that the, the process of becoming an NQT wasn't good enough. And you've sort of alluded to that a little bit by talking about mentors. So it's a, it's a change from the NQT year to, a, to an early careers framework set of training. So talk us through, what, what was the NQT year like? You went through that, didn't you, of course? So you did that. Yes. Um, so I have my personal experience of it and um, I'm not an expert on NQTs at all. The ECF framework, ask me any question, I'll know everything about it, I'm sure. Um, however, the, the NQT was your your year, you were given a percentage of the time off, you had a mentor. Um, at my school, I had a mentor, an SLT mentor, that's uh, Trish and Andy, if they're listening, I'm sure they will be cheering me on, um, who kind of worked with me, observed me, we went through an iterative process of a year. Of course, then for me, that stopped, those observations and um round the clock support stopped as soon as we went in lockdown pretty much um but you'd complete these huge documents of all the targets and you're trying to do all the teaching standards at once um and yes you might have your individualized targets that they're looking for in your observations but you need to jump through all of those hoops at once while spinning plates and it was just a mess and so while sorry go on what's the time scale you think a, t- a time scale for for nqt's a year, a year. Hmm. um really short it's too short um it doesn't really give you time does it to reflect on what you've done over that year to put that back into into practice a second time and then reflect on that and see what the improvements are yeah it's that the ECF follows this kind of instructional coaching model that you try, you refine, you improve. Whereas the NQT was that's target, do the target, complete it, okay, move on to the next thing. And the the ECF framework with these kind of blocks that loop back around again in, in year one, then to year two, it just creates that kind of formula for learning it and then refining it and becoming really excellent at that at that teaching standard and we at Brinsworth follow a really similar CPD framework as well of we you know we're not going to just do this this type of um CPD so we're not just going to do questioning for three weeks we're going to do questioning until we're really good at questioning and then we're going to move back um, we're going to do something else. We'll look back at it again. And if we need to do questioning for longer in the future, we'll do questioning for longer in the future. It's more flexible. It's 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 kinder to ECTs, I think, as well, and mentors, because um, there's less pressure to jump through that hoop and be successful every single time. As an NQT, perhaps your experience depends on, and I go back to that quote, people leave their managers, the, the experience depended more on the quality of whoever was looking after you as an NQT and the ECT is, is more structured. So the framework yeah. is, is better to work with. That that's, right? that's absolutely right. And, and I trained with a very large group of people that um, when I was doing my teacher training, not just geographers, 
um, but you know a variety of subjects and and the marker for me this is my kind of rudimentary ONS survey is the teach trainee group chat WhatsApp group chat that I'm in how many of them left within a year left the profession and you don't you hear about it but you don't you don't feel it until those people start dropping off they're leaving the profession because of the the systems that were there whereas at ECF it's there for everyone every school follows it every school is giving the same diet to their ECT. So when we receive an ECT at Brinsworth from another school, we know that they've had that, that training, that same diet, and it's not, it's not unfair. And we don't expect more from them or less from them. It's, yeah, it's, it's kinder, it's fairer, and everybody gets the same chance because you could be an excellent ECT or NQT in one school, move to another school, they've got a different NQT programme, you're then not, you're not meeting those targets that they would expect. The ECF is, yeah, that framework that everyone, every school follows across the country, and, it, and I think it's going to be more consistent. So when I come into a school, this is all new to me, of course, this is... Uh... So I, if I come into a school as, and I've got my QTS and I'm going to do this two-year um, induction, um, what, how, much, how much time do I get in, in terms of reduction so that I can spend some more time reflecting and developing my, my skills? So it's, it's kind of levelled off. So you start your ECT at... Um, and you have 10% reduction. So that's time for you to explore all the resources that have been put out by your provider, to have mental meetings, to meet with your induction tutor, to prepare for your classes. It's in, so intense when you first start at school and, and no kind of preparations prepare you for it. Um, I've had this discussion this week with people. Have you been in over the holidays? Have you been in over the holidays? No, because no matter what I do, I won't be prepared enough. It's going to hit me no matter what I do. So that 10% reduction enables you to, to structure that. So that's year one. It's about half a day a week. Um, and then 5% in year two. So it, it's staggered. Um, so rather than that huge drop off at the end of N what was NQT year, you've got that staggered, that drop. And that 10% and 5% is over and above the, the time that you'd have been allocated anyway. Yeah, so that's in addition to your kind of protected um, PPA, your planning preparation time. So you have all the time that a regular teacher would have with that extra 10% on top. Um, and that time is protected for you to do your work on yourself, on your professional standards on your teaching standards um so that is kind of your little you know, obviously that's uh, that's enforced for the teachers Do, is it an entitlement it is an entitlement um and mentors as well have that kind of built into their timetable so at our school it's protected ppa we call it because ppa is a myth isn't it <laughs> um, <laughs> it's not actually your time um but as is kind of protected and the, and across across the uk as well the, the mentor has that protected time um and it is the school's legal responsibility to ensure that ects have that time and ect mentors have that time as well which is equally important there's no use giving an ect 
for that time when your mentor themselves can't um, be there for them? What if I've got questions in ECT? So, so it helps them, it gives them that kind of legal framework. And, and the, the question, if I was a school lead, would be, okay, then what's in it for me? I'm giving all this time to these um, ECTs and ECT mentors. What's in it for me? Well, there's a pot of funding um, that you get at the end of your second at the end of your ECT finishing their second year. So we talked earlier about retention. There's that financial incentive for schools to make sure that their ECTs have that high quality training because if not, your funding's gone. Hmm. It's not all about the money, but it is. So you mentioned earlier on, so we're an early, I'm an early career teacher, so I'm now an ECT mm-hmm. and I've come into school and and there is this early career framework which I'm working with. So what's it like? How does it work? How, how does that how does that pan out? So um, you will arrive and you will get your induction tutor. You have regular observations with them. Um, you have kind of pers- uh, program training that is either delivered by your induction mentor as it is at our school or by your ECT mentor and it follows um kind of follows the teacher standards but in a more I think a more pulled out way which is is really nice so you have you start with your um what we call high expectations of learners so what would have been your kind of setting the standards setting the tone um behavior management type thing and it works so well for our ECTs who are coming in um and you know, sometimes quite shocked. Why aren't the children doing exactly what I want them to do? This is a bit strange. Um, So it starts with that. And then we dip into the kind of um, cognition. How do students learn? And it kind of follows follows that. And then it's subject knowledge. This is my favourite. This is my bit. Um, so, So what do we do? What does knowledge look like in your subject? How do you apply it? How do you make time to learn your knowledge as well? Um, and then you look again at kind of metacognition and classroom practice and the environment and the space that you create for learners. Adaptive teaching, which is kind of, you know, your, your all your little class codes that you've, you've put on your seat and plans this week of SEN and, and stretch and challenge and high ability and all of those. Then you look at assessment and then you go back down and you work back through again. Um, onto kind of um, following your kind of professional standards a bit. You then go back through and work on it and finesse it and make it better um, for ECT2. So your ECT2 is kind of the same again, um, but the framework itself uses phrases like improving um, high expectations, finessing um, adaptive teaching, understanding, applying how students learn. So it kind of rolls back around. We talk about it as a kind of spiral curriculum it comes back for it where does the training material come from because as you talk there i'm thinking that because we're we're doing a ga podcast there's quite a lot from the geographical association that talks about assessment and critical thinking and how pupils learn mm. but not every school will access material that geographical association produces so is there a set standard or can people cherry pick where they go to and who who controls that that level of of quality control 
that's it so you have quite a lot of bodies um and we joke in our in our team on how many acronyms could there possibly be? Um, so you have your appropriate body that you choose as a school and all of their resources have been kind of pre-approved and they've gone through a real honing process. They've, they've tried to make them as specific as possible. Um, so they, those resources are, are sent to you um, and you are available to you as ECT induction lead, as ECT uh mentor as ECT yourself so you have those pre-approved documents so you're not like you said cherry picking from different parts and it's not a kind of mixed diet they've all been kind of approved so if I decided as an ECT mentor we've looked at the pre-approved content from our appropriate body we've gone through that oh I remember reading this really good thing in in GA or I've seen this um kind of concept I want to discuss with you elsewhere they can bring that in but the idea is that that kind of core framework has been pre-approved has been thought about has been or is going to be accessed by everybody in the same at the same rate at the same time and we can draw in on those on those key groups and our subject associations being one um and subject associations can kind of and have offered their support to these bodies and have given them kind of tons of information. Because we've been doing this, haven't we? If I talked about high expectations and, and um, behavior management and adaptive teaching, we've been doing this for a really long time. It's not new. Um, so the stuff that's there can be drawn on as kind of extra, extra bits. Now with a framework like that then, which is fairly, well, it's, it's very strongly structured actually, does that mean I can carry it on to another school or if I'm a supply teacher, for instance, can I do it as a supply teacher as well? Yeah, you can do it as a supply teacher. It's it's slightly different. It's possible, but it's slightly different. So you can do it across different supply engagements and then you and you can extend your time period as well, I believe. But yeah, it is possible for induction, um, not induction, supply you, teachers. You went through... I think six. There, there's eight, aren't there? There are eight standards covered by the early right. framework, um, the profession development training. But as I understand it, you're not assessed against the early career framework, are you? You're assessed against these kind of key blocks. So at the end of each block, you would create a kind of portfolio of evidence that supports the fact that you have worked towards those blocks. Where do the teacher standards fit into all of this? As I see it, it they're embedded into each of these blocks. Okay. So you have your kind of, you know, you have your standards that are bought into each of these blocks. So as we said about high expectations, the behaviour teacher standard is in there. The block about adaptive teaching, your standard about adapting teaching is on there. Subject knowledge um, teacher standard links to your subject and curriculum block. So they're kind of embedded into each block. How do I how do I collect and present that evidence to to my mentor? And then it's got to go, I suppose, to the, the leadership team. So it's got to be something that's that's transferable, understandable, not just by my mentor through chatting about it so I get a, a picture of you but it goes it goes elsewhere too so it's got to communicate beyond that three-way conversation between the two mentors and the teacher 
Yeah, that's it. So it's so the evidence that you can collect can be, we discussed this yesterday with our ECTs, the evidence you collect is so varied. So you can collect kind of lesson plans, annotated lesson plans, uh, emails, documentation um, from CPD, um, you know, those kind of certificates that get, they get sent to you after you've done CPD. Um, you can do kind of annotated seating plans. Um, we encourage ECTs to try and get people to email them after they do something. Thank you for helping me after school with this. It was really helpful. Um, and then, yes, they're collected. So it depends on your school setting. At our school, we're, we're old school. We like a file, a bit of paper. Um, and then our appropriate body will come in and QA those. We sign off kind of um, the development plans, observations, obviously, as well. And then these kind of assessments that happen regularly but not as regular as your um nqt there's less paper um let's put it that way and the paper that you are filling out is meaningful um has been thought about has yeah gone through that process of of qa the ecf framework although it came out really recently has been being thought about for a really long time so yeah you've got you've got those bits so you collect your evidence um, it gets signed off by your mentor, gets signed off by your induction tutor, and then your um, appropriate body will check that and check that ECTs are getting offered what they would expect them to offer. The GA's programme of CPD is designed to support your teaching of geography, whatever your phase or career stage. We provide research-informed, accessible and convenient professional development alongside quality-assured presenters, many of whom are practising teachers with strong track records of teaching and leading geography in their own schools. As a registered delegate, you'll get access to the recording of your course, as well as all of the resources, so that you can revisit key points and share ideas with other members of staff in your school. With subject knowledge updates for teachers of all key stages, courses that focus specifically on leading geography and developing your curriculum, and opportunities for integrating fieldwork, there's something for everyone. For further information or to view our current programme of events, please go to our website at geography.org.uk. How much do I have to think about the underpinning research so for instance if I'm going to be looking at how I set expectations do I have to have included in in what I do references back to how people set expectations or for instance how children learn perhaps I go back to Vygotsky or, or if I'm doing geography I might go back to something that Margaret Roberts has talked about and talk about um setting a need to know and the, an inquiry question how does how does that all work so uh, the resources that are given to us by our um appropriate body are really research informed um which is fantastic so they would work through the ects when i'm saying they the ects would work through the often online kind of click through learn they have these kind of learn how to statements um and learn that statement so they work their way through those they're well researched they are yeah research informed as well and like you said then if you, if the ECT chooses then to go further with that research read further into those kind of key 
key players um, they can they can do that but the idea is that that research has been chunked for them you know you've not got to crack out loads of research texts it's it's been finessed for you and then should you choose as many of our ECTs do then to select a, a further text to read they can um, but the idea is, is that expectation or that kind of legwork has been taken out and um, for them if I include a lesson plan how much is that of value or should I be or should I be saying this is my plan this is this is my intent this is how it was received by the students this is what they made of it and this is how I know that it was effective do we have to go through that's almost those Ofsted stages isn't it or, or can they just put a lesson plan in I think lesson plans look different to everyone don't they and they're lesson plans that you would have churned out for your um ITT year maybe you know they're big documents aren't they so so yeah it is important to consider your groups your key groups and how what impact it has and and go through that reflective process of course um but in terms of quality you need to think about what works for you so yes lesson plans are important but yeah, we're not expecting this kind of pre-formulated lesson plan that is kind of, I'm going to ask a student this and they're going to tell me this and the impact is this. You're reflecting as you're going along. And, and if your lesson plan, you know, is done on the on the back of some, I don't know, postcard, but you've thought about it and you've made sure that you're hitting your kind of improvement section or you're looking or you've, you've read about this block or or um, you've studied this key text and you want to try it. The fact that it's been thought about is enough. It's not this kind of pre-formulated, everybody's writing the same lesson plan and yeah, and singing exactly from the same hymn sheet. That's not how it works and that's not how... I would want it to be in a professional setting. We're professionals. We've got to where we are because we've studied hard and we've worked really hard. And it would it would destroy my soul slightly if I saw everybody churning out the same lesson plan with this, that and the other on it. Um, but yeah, the, the evidence that you collect is the stuff that works for you, not the stuff that works to, to jump through hoops. That's what we're trying to avoid. I'm, I'm glad you said that. I do worry sometimes when I hear teachers talking about the, they're not all like this at all, but they're not, but some multi-academy trusts where teachers are given their lessons on PowerPoint across the mat and they're expected to teach the same thing. And sometimes they'll use the word to deliver. We are going to deliver these. And I, I just find that really quite worrying. You've just talked about it there in terms of we are professionals and you think about the way that you want to present that information to encourage your children to be excited, inquiring, and want to learn and, and want to extend their knowledge. Imagine if you had read a, a fantastic article in Teaching Geography. There we go, there's your plug. <laughs> You've read it on the weekend and you're itching to go and tell your class about it, but it's not on your pre-approved PowerPoint. What does that do? What does that do for people that love their subject? It's it's useless. It's and it's not improving your subject knowledge to stand with a pre-approved PowerPoint. And yeah, I just yeah, I'm with you on that one for sure. 
so we are yeah we love our subjects and the minute we start kind of scripting ourselves we restrict that and that's not good how big is the portfolio you talked about um you you like paper you say <laughs> so how how much are teachers expected to do um with because you you've given them this 10 percent and five percent so what what does one look like when it's finished so um they would have a um what's it called improvement plan they would have an improvement plan um that has on there for each block so it's one page for each block strengths improvements what i'm going to do actions and that's signed off by your induction mentor and then all you need then is three pieces of high quality evidence that's it three pieces of high quality evidence and that's over two years by the way for each block so yeah i love paper but we're not talking kind of huge pieces of information not the WAF textbook right more like more like walkthroughs you know smaller I, I, I meant to pick up on this earlier and, and, and I forgot. You talked about improvement plans. Yes. So that suggests something needs improved. So that suggests that somebody's identified an area for improvement. So is that something that the tutor has done in conjunction with the, the early career teacher? So does, does each person have a different improvement plan within a framework? Yeah, so your improvement could be, you know, could be tiny, but everyone's got something that they can that they can improve on. So your your document, your improvement plan document is worked through with the ECT. We always talk about there being no surprises with the ECT framework. There's no nothing's going to creep up on you. You've gone through this idea of this was absolutely excellent. What more could we do next time? What more could we improve on? You ask this question, how much more could you get if you ask them this question? And this document, this improvement document is done through an instructional coaching model. So you said this, what about this? Let me show you what that looks like in my classroom, or let me show you right now how I would present that information differently. And then the ECT and the ECT mentor and the ECT induction tutor then will kind of agree that that's where we're going with that. It's a really collaborative process. Nothing's being picked that isn't absolutely for that ECT. It's not just yeah, picked out of nowhere. It's been thought about and... And everyone's in agreement. Everyone's on the same page. And just the one page, not loads of pages. You, you've talked about induction mentors and induction tutors now. So that'd be really useful to unpick the difference because I'm yes. not sure I know the difference just yet. So what, yes. what is So my role is induction lead, induction mentor. So I lead the induction of the CTs um so my school there's there's 12 of them so so I mentor the mentors so they can mentor the ECTs I will also mentor the ECTs so we've done it at our school we've picked out kind of key bits that we want to well that we need to teach for the ECT framework and I deliver that content in weekly meetings so that then the mentor time can be used for Last week, we talked about 10B. How's it going with X student? 
so that mental time can be finessed and used in a way that is specific to that ECT. I will, in my sessions, talk about those key areas, those key blocks, um, and do a general kind of cliff notes of what, what we need to achieve in a week or over that block. And then mentors will have that specific, subject-specific as well, um, conversation, instructional coaching session with their mentor. And that's different across different settings. In some schools, mentors deliver that core content and do the kind of almost pastoral conversations or subject-specific conversations with their ECT. We've just decided in our setting that it makes more sense that one person's doing the core stuff and the mentors themselves are doing their subject things. But it's what works for your setting. So induction mentor, subject specialist, um, induction lead, ECF specialist. Right. There we go. I've promoted myself, ECF specialist. I think I've got that clear now. And um, how do you fit in things like um, safeguarding and British values and elements like that? Yeah, so um, we tend to do them kind of whole staff, um, whole staff training. Um, and our ECTs aren't excluded from the school wide. CPD that we offer it would be unfair for them not to experience that um so we offer that through kind of school-based but it, it drops into all of these things doesn't it It drops into curriculum British values it drops into safeguarding drops into behavior management and classroom climate we talked yesterday in our meeting our ECT meeting just how important it is for some of our kids to feel safe in a classroom and to have that predictable environment that's safeguarding, isn't it? So they have those those bits dropped in, but wider school training is where we would we would implement those those key documents we would want them to read or those key bits of information. Hmm. Now you mentioned right at the beginning and said we might come back to this, and we are now. Um, when I first started teaching, I think the thing that one of the things I found really difficult was that the work that I'd done at university was entirely different from the curriculum at school when I first started. I went to university at the start of the statistical revolution, it was called, I think. So we were looking at Kristala and Lersch and Weber, all those models of, of industrial location, of settlement patterns, netted hexagons. And, and then I, I was teaching regional geography when I first got there, which was really, really old-fashioned um, and I, I went to the GA as support for the subject because although I was a geographer the geography that I knew wasn't the geography within schools so you've written an awful lot about the importance of subject and curriculum knowledge so I'm going to ask you why do you think it's so important it's just everything, isn't it? I, I just don't think you can stand up in front of a classroom and not have complete love of learning for your subject. I just, I can't see a world where I don't love geography and I don't want to learn more about it. You can tell when you walk into a classroom and there is a teacher that loves their subject. That teacher doesn't necessarily know everything there is about that subject, but they're confident enough to know 
but they need to know it. It's that kind of known unknown. And that's and that's just that's just so important to me. And it's probably partially informed by the fact that my degree isn't in geography and that and I had to do that initial work towards subject knowledge that I find it so so important I just yeah I just think subject knowledge is so key I don't I don't think you can behave you manage if you don't have secure knowledge of your subject I don't think you can make a safe environment and an inclusive environment if you don't have secure knowledge of your subject it all comes down to it and and it's it is really important that your seating plans are tip top that you know all your learners but but what if one of your learners that you have spent hours knowing about learning about wants to talk to you about a specific area of geography that you don't yet know about or that you're not quite sure about or you you've spent time doing something else instead and you really actually you could have learned about that how much better is that for your relationships so my kids my kids think I am a loser because I, I just kind of, I have a rock drawer in my classroom. But enthusiasm is infectious, isn't it? If you can, if you can show them that, oh my gosh, I'm going to go, I'm going to go on holiday. Um, and some of my kids do this. I'm going to go on holiday. I'm going to bring Miss Simpson back a rock. <laughs> and these are like some of the, and they'll love me for saying this, some of the coolest kids in the world bringing me back a rock. And I'm like, absolutely. How important is that for your relationships to have to have that secure subject knowledge? And they're, you know, they're like, tell me about this rock, Miss Simpson. And I'm like, oh gosh, okay. I don't know. <laughs> but I could give you a good, I could give you a good analysis of the rock. But yeah, I think subject knowledge is, is key. And I just, yeah, I think it's the basis on which we are teachers. It's it's the reason we're in those specific classrooms teaching those subjects in the first place, isn't it? We've chosen it. I think it's difficult geography. I think it's difficult to pin down. When I first started the Geographical Association, Francis Saw, who was the office manager and had a first class degree in English, said to me, if I asked a historian what history is, I understand it after three or four sentences. If I ask a geographer what geography is, I'm going to ask you now, she said, what's geography? So I, I tried to explain. And she said, yes, I, you see, even you can't do it. I think geography is really hard. We have so many concepts. We can have paired concepts. We can look at space and place. And it becomes difficult when you even read back on concepts that other academics have put together because every, every different academic has a different set of concepts that underpin geography. And it makes it difficult for non-specialists. Um. I think I see that a lot. I, I'm working... I'm working on the, um, the primary geography quality mark. So I see what schools do at primary level sometimes where the, the geography lead is enthusiastic, but not necessarily a geographer. And if they're enthusiastic and they start to learn about geography, the first thing they'll do is do the local area fantastically. They will, but then they'll struggle with distant places because they can often pick one view, which then becomes Chimamandra Adichie and goes, is the danger of a single story. And mm. we learn about just one bit. Whereas geographers, when they're trained, have more of an ability to 
pull different perspectives in. And I think that's one of the things that makes for really good geography. Mm. That's right. Yeah, exactly. And and it's overwhelming when you start. And I, I wasn't starting from a position of knowing no, no geography. I had my A-level in geography. But it can be really overwhelming. And as, as school staff, we are so time poor. But it's about having that confidence to say to your subject lead, your head of department, or in primary school, your head teacher and saying, actually, I'm going to need that time. I'm going to need that hour to read that article. I'm going to need that five minutes just to go over that again. Or, or can you talk me through that? Can you just talk that to me? You've done that. That's your specialism. And, and as a department in my school, we've got we've got a real range of, of different specialisms. And we draw on that. And there's times in our in our department meets where we will spend, you know, sometimes a whole department meet discussing, teaching each other things. So I talked about, and you mentioned um, the year one book, just how important using your network is and, and subject associations being one of them, but you know, the Twitter sphere, your textbooks, your non, your non kind of pre-approved exam board approved books as well, your kind of geography Bibles. Um, that are that are really important to read, but but taking the time to use those and and planning them into your planning and preparation time. When you're planning a lesson, you're not planning a PowerPoint. You're planning the knowledge that you need to accrue as well, and you're you're thinking about what what more, what extra bit, what extra bit of nugget of information can I drop in there? Um, so yeah, I think as as school staff, and if there's any school leaders listening that importance that kind of that time to actually know your subject is really important really important how much time is given to that in this program i i, I used to do it it was called inset in those days i was the inset coordinator at one stage and then it became cpd um, and the the complaint from the staff often was that the leadership team didn't give them anywhere near enough time to talk through the quality of the subject that they were teaching. And I, I sometimes struggled. If I, was, if I was doing lesson observations of, say, in the French department, it could be a well-managed lesson, but I wouldn't have a clue really about the level of French and whether it was the right quality because I'm not French speaker. So how do you overcome there's two things there. You've got a mentor who might not be the subject specialist and you've got teachers demanding time to become better at their subject. Yeah, and how do you come, become better? It's such a big question, isn't it? How do you become better at something? So the time built in is in the framework, isn't it? Those, those double blocks, that one at year one and that one at year two to work on subject and curriculum knowledge. There's your subject mentor that you have, your specific mentor that has the expertise, or if they don't have their expertise, they have that time now, that legal time to help you and to help themselves. It might even be that you and your mentor as an ECT and ECT mentor decide, actually, we're going to use 20 minutes of each of our hour to go through this bit, this article or these articles that we really want to want to finesse. That that's the beauty of this framework. It, it gives you that time and it also builds in that that subject curriculum knowledge 
and gives you that subject mentor. The induction mentor can lead, or, you know, in our case, it certainly does at our school, the induction mentor can lead the overall stuff and then say, go and try that in your setting, go and try that in your subject. Um, so I think that the subject mentor has a really important role um, in making sure that that's, that's happening. You've got quite a lot, haven't you, in your school? And for those who are listening, they won't know how big Brinsworth is, but Brinsworth's quite a, a sizable school. But how many did you say again? Was it, are you into double figures? Just yes. double, yeah, double figures. Just, just double figures, yeah. Um, yeah, so we, we do have a lot of ECTs and we do recruit ECTs. Um, so, yeah, there's that kind of significant cohort of, of ECTs. And from a management perspective, I think that's, really good we're we're giving them that chance because we do from from a head teacher's perspective gosh we've got to give out all these hours for training but because we're doing it in-house and because we know that training that is going to be high quality hopefully hopefully our ECTs would would say this as well you know they're going to stick around and they're going to be really good teachers and they're not going to leave the profession because of burnout because of not knowing because of these hoops that they've got to jump through, they're sticking around because they've had that high quality training from delivered to us from the framework. And I presume then it uh, it spreads across other teachers. So it becomes pretty much a thinking school because you've got people reflecting all the time. That's it. And, and at Brinsworth, we followed um, the instructional coaching model borrowed from the ECF. So, so all staff go through this um, we have what we call quad groups. So there's four of us. We go and see other subjects. We instructional coach once a week. We have a look at what we saw here that was really good. We have a look at what we saw here that was really good. We bring articles and we discuss them. Um, we, we follow teaching walkthroughs as a book as well, which I think is, is really good. It kind of breaks down each kind of key section um, of teaching pretty much. And it's a manual. Um, so we use that as well. So yeah, the ECTs are such an asset to our school. I'm saying that as well as, as a, I'm an NQT that arrived at the school, and I'm such an asset. I don't mean that. <laughs> but they do. If You know, I'm an example of it. You train them right. You treat them right. You give them that opportunity to excel, and they're loyal to you. Wait till the DFE get to listen to this. <laughs> sponsored by the <laughs> as a model school it does sound it does sound like it's a big improvement on the nqt experience um it does sound like the dfe have listened very carefully to what teachers must have said about not having enough time to reflect not having enough time to develop as teachers uh, and I imagine that's what the whole process is about, is, is trying to address that, uh, that dropout rate. Yeah, imagine the DfE listen to us <laughs> <laughs> and provide us with something that's really quite decent. <laughs> I'm going to take you away from all this now. I'm going to take you away on holiday because uh, I think... When I was reading up about what you've been up to, you've also done some pretty amazing travel in your short time. I don't think I don't think I did very much apart from drive from Sheffield to 
Aston, which is near Rotherham, there and back, there and back, there and back. I didn't do very much at all, actually, until you, and, and, until my the end of my first year when the, the teacher who was doing European studies said, John, what do you think? Shall we take him on holiday? Shall we take him for a school trip? We ended up in, in Duisburg am Rhein. I wasn't very well travelled as a young teacher, but you've been all over the place. So there's a dilemma here for me, because um, as geographers, we're also explorers. We want to explore. But because we understand climate change and we understand some of the problems with that, it also makes that a difficult decision whether to go or not to go. But you, you travelled around Malaysia, you had a short stop in Doha, which is most impressive. Tell us about it and how you assuaged your conscience when you did it. That's it. Um, as, as teaching staff, we work hard and we play hard. So, you know, the, the Malaysia trip, it just was, it came at the right time for me, two years of COVID and um, lockdown restrictions. So, yeah, um, four weeks-ish in Malaysia was absolutely incredible. Um, the kids were teasing me because Malaysia is one of our case studies for geography. And they were telling me, Miss Simpson, don't you think it's a bit sad that you're you're trying to live out a case today well yes but no um it was incredible so yeah we chose um to go away to Malaysia and it's you know it's a big trip and it's a carbon emitting trip so we did what we could in terms of getting there so we we bussed and trained to Paris we got as far as we could I mean we could have gone further we got as far as we could um to Paris and then flew from from Paris to um to Doha which was incredible going like flying in and seeing this land built on sand um and then um and then we flew from from Doha into Kuala Lumpur and we and like I said we um listened and we learned from the experience so we went into sustainable hotels um I did a stay in the in the rainforest which um was <laughs> so cool um I've already showed you know I've only been teaching for a day um we're recording this right at the start of of school um school starting in September I've already shown the kids some pictures of orangutans that I saw um so we went into the rainforest sustainable um hotel kind of uh, lodge thing there um we went to the coral reef and we studied um the kind of fish the cleaner fish there and we counted them and they had uh, the people we were with had kind of tallies on on how many cleaner fish there were so we were helping them to help the coral which was was pretty cool um and yeah it was it was an incredible trip but like you say there's that there's that nagging feeling isn't there of this is really quite bad for the environment um so you offset where you can and I think two years of no travel actually was probably the biggest offset thank you COVID um it does sound absolutely fantastic and, and one of the things about geographers when you're teaching distant places is this thing we spoke of a little bit earlier about the danger of one story even if you go there there's a danger of you just being shown certain things particularly if you go on package sort of into into a hotel holiday where it's all inclusive you only see one little bit but it, it it's about trying to get different views i think the the 
the GA's manifesto was about, it was called a different view. And it was about the, the aim is to travel with a different view, to see things and to experience things and try and get a, it's different ways that people see that same place. So you get a better, rounder, a richer understanding of place. That's it. And we travelled to kind of six locations across Malaysia and then kind of the uh, peninsula Malaysia and, and Borneo as well. Even had a little stop off in Singapore, which again was, it was like being in the future. Um, but yeah, you just listen, you just learn, you pick up bits and try and talk to as many people as possible. And yeah, there's just so many, so many nuggets of, of information that I learned. How to, how to survive in the rainforest was a good one. If you're stuck in the rainforest, you don't know where you're going. It can be really loud and overwhelming. So you have to get yourself into a butcher's route, which as geographers, we all know what a butcher's route is, right? And you drum on the side of the butcher's route. And that sound cannot be imitated by any animal in the rainforest. So only humans will know that that's somebody knocking on a tree and they will come and save you. Well, there you go. I've learned something new. Incredible. There you go. How to survive in the rainforest. Brilliant. I'm not going to, I'm not going to ask you any more questions of this because I'm getting too jealous. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds really wonderful. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. I've really enjoyed it. And I've learned a lot about a, a new way of bringing teachers into the profession, which I think is obviously from talking to you much of an improvement. Is there anything I've forgotten that you would like to add for people coming into the profession? I just think you, you've, if you're coming in, if this is your first term, thank you and stay and you know, be open to everything, give everything a go. Um, we're not just here to recruit you, we're here to keep hold of you as well. Um, there's a reason you chose to teach and just hold on to that and use that. Remind yourself of that, write it on a post-it note, keep it on your desk. There's a reason why you're here. And yeah, you know, you've made the right choice, I think I'd say. Yeah, and I think going to Brinsworth is a good choice too. It's uh, it's a nice place. <laughs> Brinsworth and, and um, Maltby and Aston and one or two of the others around there. Thank you very much. That's been a pleasure to talk to you today. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you.